0: What is your expectation of the Christian life? Um, Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not when you're here, sat here today, what do you think the Christian life looks like? Is your understanding of the Christian life that kind of stereotypical, it's oppressive, it's dull, it lacks any kind of excitement, any kind of joy, Um, you know, and those kind of endless restrictions that are applied are applied by those zealots, those regular churchgoers, Yeah, you type of people. And if you think that is your, if that is the picture that you have in your mind of the Christian life, then I think you've been terribly misled. You may consider yourself a Christian here today, but you may just dabble. And by that I mean you dip your life into the, your your toes into the life of kind of the Christian every now and then when it suits you. But for most of the time, you just live life as you please, your way. And who's anyone to tell you what to do with your life? But you may be here and you might not consider yourself a Christian. So where have you gained your understanding of the Christian life? That stereotypical view, if that's your view. It may be EastEnders, you know, dot com. She's hardly the best advert for the Christian life, is she? You know, all the Christianity itself. But perhaps you've dismissed the Christian faith, not because you think Christians are terrible people, Um, and not because of any kind of intellectual persuasion. You just may not have had the time, or want to put the effort and the time in to investigate the Christian faith and find out more, Uh, See, what you've learnt from perhaps your cynical RE teacher or your kind of resident family members, that's enough for you. You'll leave it at that. That's fine. Well, if the conclusion you've come to and you sit here right now it is that the Christian faith is just a little bit dull, a little bit boring, with those kind of endless restrictions, then I'm afraid you have been misled. We're going to come back to this, uh, the parable in a moment. Just, just think for a moment. Banquet. What was the first miracle that Jesus did in the Bible? You will know, many of you here, if you know John's Gospel, that it was at a wedding. And Jesus turned a, a whole number of vats of water into amazing wine. And he turned out a kind of average party to an amazing party. With joy. And it was just great, great, great. He was so was like frivolous. And you might kind of say, Why? Surely the bigger things for Jesus to do, for his first miracle, surely he should like heal the sick or feed the hungry? Surely not. Isn't that the main thing you're thinking? Well no, Christianity, that is being part of the kingdom of God, having God's kingdom power within us, is about many things. And those things are very, very important, but supremely it is about eternal joy. Being face to face with the glory of God. A kind of joy that we taste when we go to the best party or the best stadium gig of your favourite band or whatever it may be. You know, that, that big, huge thing, a huge banquet with eight courses, with knives and forks that go the whole way to the end of the table. But that is a taste. It's just a taste of a joy that will last forever in the kingdom of God. And we see this explained in the parable, the parable of the great banquet today. But you see, the reason Jesus tells us this parable is because who gets into that banquet, that everlasting joy? Who gets in? And that is the shock of the parable, I think. Because this parable will, I guess, will be warning to some here But at the same time, I think it will also be great comfort for others. Let's just dip our toes in, shall we, at the beginning. Look at verse 15, if you can. Jesus is at the house of this prominent Pharisee. You see that from the beginning of the chapter, back in verse 1. He heals a man, right in those early verses, a man with dropsy, And it's on the Sabbath day. The religious folk, the Pharisees who are there, they're not happy. They remain silent. You can see this kind of, they're trying to get Jesus. He's breaking all of their rules. And Jesus begins to speak. And pride and social status were preventing the, the gathered great and good to see that the kingdom of God, with this man that was speaking at the table that they were sat at, was going to come in him. They couldn't see. Pride and social status was just saying it can't be that. And Jesus, when he speaks, is controversial, to say the least. That short parable that follows, we're not going to look at it today, but it shows that disciples in his kingdom, they wouldn't be marked as the Pharisees were marked, but they would be marked with two things, humility and generosity. I tried to think of a kind of parallel for us. Imagine you're sat at a dinner party, really nice, you know, with lots and lots of knives and forks and so on, where everyone has spent the whole evening, as they do, telling you how great things were at work, how big the bonus was going to be, the car that they were looking forward to. We're going to do an extension. It's going to go out 20 metres from the back. And and all of these kind of things, and everything's going to be electronic and so on. And do you know how the children are developing? They've got into the best school. Oh, do you know, he's only three weeks old and he said 60 words already. He's amazing. And so on. (laughs) Or is that just the dinner parties that I go to? Well, what Jesus says here would be like us at that kind of dinner party, doing this kind of thing as people were tucking into their creme brulees. I printed out a little um, sheet for you from the internet today for all my guests. It it tells us um, of uh, the 23 million people that are starving in North Africa at the moment. Do enjoy the creme brulee. I don't think it would be any less shocking what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus speaks to these people who held themselves in so much esteem and they were so proud. And he warns them, he says, the kingdom of God shows unconventional humility and unconventional generosity. That ought to be the norm for followers in the kingdom of God. And visible to others. That kind of self-promotion and pretentiousness that we so easily fall into has no place within God's kingdom. And one of the dinner guests, you get into verse 15. Take, cast your eyes down there, right at the beginning of our passage. And he blurts out, I guess in a rather embarrassed and socially awkward way. Look what he says. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It was probably to break the silence after all that Jesus had said before. It's kind of an empty cliche before the conversation probably moved to the weather or the security at the Olympics. You know, and the gathered knew that God, um, through Isaiah the prophet, had promised that the kingdom of God would be like a great feast and a banquet and so on. And um, that God had provided so much and would host this great banquet that would make any kind of, you know, big banquet at the Buckingham Palace just like a happy meal from McDonald's. So if you're a first century party-goer, as the situation we see here, in the company of a kind of seemingly esteemed church minister, Jesus here, to throw out a phrase like this, as we see in verse 15, would be quite normal. It would break the awkward moment. And if you said it, you'd be marked out as a kind of respectable man, a kind of good church-going type person. Blessed is the man. Who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God? That's a good thing to say in front of a church minister. But behind that cliche is a very dark sentiment. Because what he's saying, is saying to Jesus there, hey, by the way, I'm good enough. I, I, you know, blessed is the man. I, I, I'm the man. You don't have to worry about me, Jesus. I'm that kind of religious sort of person that, that you can just back off from, thank you very much. People say things like this to me every day. You'd be surprised. You know, when you're a church minister, amazing people, people just come up to you in the playground or when you meet someone, and they, they say all sorts of things. And it's a kind of self-justification, as I think this man in verse 15 is, is kind of doing. It, people say to me things like this, without any introduction, we went to a charity dinner last night. <laughs> Do you know that? They never tell me that they spent £500 on the ticket and then probably paid for, you know, a day at a tennis club for 8,000 pounds just to show off their mates they've got that kind of money. You know, and just, it's such a good cause. And then they walk off. <laughs> they say things like this all the time. And the expectation is, you're amazing. You want a pat on the back. Let me give you a kind of religious hug and say you're wonderful. You'll be okay with Jesus because you went to that charity ball. That's the expectation. And the people want to, to know that from their piecemeal kind of little bit of goodness that they're okay with God and it just doesn't wash. And the same is true for this man in verse 15. Perhaps he wanted from Jesus a bit of a bit of an amen, a bit of a hallelujah, a bit of a Jesus high five whatever it may be, but he but Jesus just doesn't let this kind of empty empty piety go as we as we will see in a moment. The man thought he was just spiritually okay. He he knew about and believed in heaven and this great banquet, that would have just been so obvious to him and he was utterly convinced he was going there. So Jesus clarifies in this parable who's going to be there at that banquet in the kingdom of God. Not only that, but also if you have entered, how you will be part of it Both today and for the rest of your lives, not just by the skin of your miserable and reluctant, you know, kind of fingernails or holding on just in just in and so on, but to be in it with joy, without reluctance. So, firstly, to our first point, Jesus points out the great banquet is being prepared for you. It is important as you look at as you follow through this parable, you first get the invitation, but in verse 16 that the great banquet is still being prepared, and the King of God is saying, "It's like this great banquet, but it isn't fully ready yet. It's being prepared still. So you may visit the man's house who's going to put the the banquet on. You you see the the banquet being prepared, if you like. You get a taste of what is being prepared. You smell the amazing ingredients. You get the jo- a lot of joy from that experience and seeing all that is prepared for you and The excitement and the expectation, it builds in you. But it isn't the fullness of the banquet to come. Because that's being prepared. And in every parable that we've seen in Luke's Gospel, and throughout the New Testament, to be honest, that we see this tension. The kingdom of God, if you like, is a taste now. It is a power that comes into your life as we saw last week. It gives purpose and it gives joy right now, today. But it's not complete. And you will know that if you're part of the kingdom of God today, you don't see complete healing. You don't don't see complete kind of restoration, do you, in your life? You still sin. And that will be the case until that last day when you sit down. At the banquet. Oh, it's already here. But it's not yet here in its fullness. And that can be frustrating, can't it? As life gets tough. But the banquet is being prepared and we've got to trust the host and his promise in the invitation that we've received. That he's making a space for us on the table with our little name on, on the kind of bit of card that you see as you come into the banquet. But if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, can I say firstly, you're incredibly welcome. Listen to this invitation though. Hear God's voice and trust that he could be today taking one of those nice little bits of thick card and folding over with this lovely little calligraphy writing, writing your name on it and preparing a place for you. And if you're a Christian today, do not let familiarity breeds contempt in you like the self-righteous Pharisees that we've seen at the beginning of this chapter. Because Jesus has prepared a place for you and you have a taste, just a taste, of all the amazingness to come. So know the privilege of the invitation that you've received and keep it close to your heart. And that will bring joy now, joy and contentment but it's just a taste of what is to come. Just a taste. And don't be frustrated by that wait because it may be some time. I don't know if you've ever been invited to something special like a big wedding or a big banquet or a great big birthday party or something like that. You get the invitation of those kind of events, don't you, in the post. It's not just an email or a phone call or text. It's in the post and it comes on that very, very thick, nice card you don't know where it comes from. It comes from a, a magic station it's somewhere that we don't know of. But you get that card and it's beautiful to look at. It's crisp and it's white and it's got a lovely handwriting. It states the date and the time of the event. Where do you put that kind of invitation? Do you just pop it into your iPhone or whatever it is, the diary, and then just chuck it away? No, you don't. You put it on your bedside table or on your mantelpiece or wherever it is in the kitchen where everyone can see that you've been invited to that event. Wow, you're going to get... Woo, that's a conversation starter, isn't it? It builds anticipation. It excites you. You can't wait. You're counting the days down. But it helps you in the wait too, doesn't it? Because you think it's worth waiting for. Well, a great banquet is being prepared for you and the host has invited you but on his invitation, that Chris White card, the invitation is written in blood. Wait patiently. And remember every day that the invitation has cost the host everything. That might just help you wait. But also will help us remember that we can bring nothing to this banquet that second little sub point of that, that first point. And one day you'll hear, look at verse 16. Come, for everything is now ready. And it is only those who come with the kind of the empty hand and the grateful heart. They'll be the ones who enter the great banquet. And notice in verse 16: it's not only this perceived slowness of preparation that can frustrate us. We want to be there, don't we? It's going to be amazing. But it's also worth the wait. I, I did want to put this in. I'm not sure where to put it. You know when you get invitations, it always says carriages at 12, which basically means a taxi's going to arrive. It's an old phrase. Just remember there's no carriages at 12 in the eternal banquet. It goes on forever. If you like, well, you know, the, the, the wait will frustrate us, but it's going to go on. So just keep waiting. But, but also notice in that little verse, you've got nothing to bring. See, the invitation here, it doesn't say bring a bottle, does it? You can't ring up and say, would you like me to bring a dessert? That seems commonplace these days. There's no expectation that we can bring anything to this banquet. If you think of the table that's lavishly set out for you, anything that you bring to it would just seem utterly inadequate. And look at your life and just think, is there anything that you have, can bring, can do, that will stand in eternity, in the perfection of God forever? You can't bring any stuff to put on the table, can you? Nothing you have is good enough. And you can't, even with your big fat wallets, you know, buy any stuff. This is not a restaurant, it's a banquet. The prices will be way too high. Just look at the cost on the invitation, if you like, if you want to see how costly this banquet is. You can't afford a thing. You can't bring stuff. You can't pay for stuff. You've just got to come with empty hands and grateful hearts. I don't know. Can you imagine if you've been invited? I had the state banqueting hall of Buckingham Palace on the screen, but can you imagine if you've been invited there? It looked amazing. I've never been, but there we go. Um, yeah. But imagine if you got invited to this state banquet with all the knives and forks, you know, eight courses, whatever it is. And you said to the taxi driver on the way, oh, by the way, there's a Mackie D's. Can we just pop in for a drive through I fancy a Big Mac on the way. Can you imagine? Don't spoil it. Also, don't insult the host, saying it's not going to be good enough. Don't think you've got anything to bring. A Big Mac, oh, I've got a little bit of fries left. Can I just add those to the side? It would just be so insulting, wouldn't it, to the host? I think the point here is saying, Come, for everything is now ready. All you need to do is come. That's all you can do. It's just come. This banquet, this great banquet, is the ultimate gift of grace and none of us deserve it at all. And that's why we bring nothing. I I summarise this with just my, probably my favourite verse, a line of an old hymn. And it just says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I guess that summarises that pretty well. So secondly, the great banquet is for those without excuse. To be a Christian, to be in the kingdom of God is like a great banquet, but who will be there? And it's those without excuse, but firstly, it's all kinds of people will be there. I'll put that down in our first point. Now the Pharisees have been rebuked about their choice of dinner guests in the, in the previous section of chapter 14. And I guess we're not too different in that, are we? We always want the right kind of people to come round Or to go out for a drink with. The in crowd. They're always going to be the people, aren't they, to get our invitations. But the shock of this parable, I think, is that look who gets the invitations in the end. It's the lowly, isn't it? The most socially awkward. The most socially immobile. The ones, they are the ones, sorry, who gets there in the end to this great banquet. The extraordinary thing about the kingdom of God, being a Christian is that you recognize, essentially, that you are common, that you are before God, someone who has, like everyone else, rebelled against Him. You're common in that. You may have done that in just complete indifference. I don't want to know about you. I want to gnaw you God this week, this month, this year of my life, or you may have done it in completely wild living, whatever it may be. We've all rebelled against the rule of God in our lives. And I guess the difficulty that many have with the Christian faith is that unlike any other religion, the Christian faith simply says, you've got nothing and bring nothing. And that is so hard to stomach, isn't it? Because the in crowd in our world are the in crowd because they have something and they can bring something. And whether it's wealth or it's talent or it's beauty, they've got something and they want to be able to utilise it. That's what makes them feel powerful and part of the in crowd. And that is what makes you want to invite them first for dinner. But they, to this great banquet, have nothing to bring. The Pharisees in this parable, they're the ones who Jesus is pointing at, uh, finger at right now. And they're the first to be invited, if you like. But they're the ones who are trusting in their own self-righteousness to gain them entry. What's happened? Familiarity has bred contempt. Contempt for the way of entering the banquet. Because they think they can do it on their own merits. they become self-reliant. And, and the, the contempt also for the host and his gracious preparation and provision as well. The Pharisees were incredibly spiritually wealthy. But they become self-reliant. Now many folks we know, and maybe you are one of these people here, you may be incredibly wealthy. Not, not spiritually, but in other ways wealthy with money, with, with your looks, or whatever it may be. And maybe that has made you equally self-reliant. See, other, every other world religion says, you bring your stuff. Well, it empowers you to feel that you can, you can do something, and that's an attractive way of, of thinking and worldview of our lives, isn't it? You bring the stuff, God will kind of say, yeah, that's okay, come in. But the Christian faith says you've got Nothing. And you can do nothing. And he's degrading in that sense. There is a commonness to the Christian faith. Because all kinds of people will be there. That is people who are willing to accept the fact that they have nothing to bring. Look at verse 21. You see the kind of people that were eventually um, invited. It's the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Those in the roads and in the country lanes, in verse twenty-three, that is those smelly folk who just—they have no kind of culture. They don't fit into our circles. Actually, that verse is very, very pointed, I think, because it's probably a reference to the Gentiles as well, the non-Jews. That is their inclusion into the kingdom. Something squeaky. Their inclusion into the kingdom of God is something that the Pharisees would have found absolutely abominable. But Jesus is saying all will be there. That is all people groups. Rich or poor, black or white, in crowd folk or not in crowd folk. The beautiful, the not so beautiful. Um, All who realise they have nothing essentially and can bring nothing. But trust in Jesus' invitation alone. They're the people who will be at the great banquet. Now I just want to apply this a little bit If the kingdom of God is like that, as Jesus is describing here, should this kind of mold who we invite for dinner? Who we choose to go out and have a drink with? Familiarity, I think, can so easily breed contempt, can't it, as it did in the Pharisees? And I guess the challenge for many of us, as it was for me this week, is how comfortable we've made ourselves And we may have reduced the kingdom of God to a group of people that we just feel at home with. At those moments I recall one man who I will one day sit down at this banquet with. And I will long to hear his wisdom. I think some of you have heard this illustration before. It's probably number six in my repertoire of ten. But this man is a man called Henry Garek. He's one of my heroes. He was a US Army chaplain at the end of the uh, Second World War, but very close to retirement. He was uh, seconded to be the chaplain of those who were uh, the Nazi criminals, war criminals, who were on trial um, at Nuremberg. Henry Gorex sat with these men for 18 months. He read the Bible to these men. He ate meals with these men. He shared the Lord's Supper with a number of these men. They were the most infamous and despised men on the earth at the time. You'll know some of their names, Hess, Goering, von Ribbentrop, Keitel. There were 11 men in all. And Henry Correct was daunted by this task, so much so that he hardly slept for months as he was assigned it, and he wrote in his diary that he was praying harder than he'd ever have done in his life before. The 11 men he was responsible for were there for the most disgusting of war crimes, It made Gerek shudder and sweat before he went to see them. But he was terribly criticized and terribly ostracized by his American counterparts in the army for meeting these men in their prison cells. But he was a man who spoke German, and therefore he was assigned to them. And he loved them, and he explained the gospel to them in his own language, in their own language. And he prayed and prayed and he never relented inviting them to this small chapel that he'd kind of put together at the end of their corridor to hear the gospel. He did not see his wife for three years in service of these 11 men. And when he came home he was never awarded and he was never honoured by the US Army. But of those, eight, of those 11 men, Nazi war criminals, eight of them, eight They were not in the in crowd but they responded to the invitation of the gospel and we trust that they will be sat with many of us at the great banquet. Henry Garek was one absolutely amazing man who served an even more amazing man who gave his life for all who would trust in him. And Garek knew this, this parable. That is, he knew that all kinds of people, whatever position they had in life, where they were in crowd, all the most horrible war criminals. He knew that those kind of people would be at the great banquet if they responded to the invitation of the host. Who do you invite for dinner? And what are you afraid of when you make your invitations? Many called uh, Henry Garek a Nazi lover. A Jew hater was one uh, kind of a Headline: Some went as far as to suggest that he should have been hung at Nuremberg with the rest of them. That's the response he got. But in the kingdom of God, all kinds of people will be there. And I just want to say very lovingly, you better get used to that. Stop making excuses. The great banquet is for those without excuses. All kinds of people will be there, but lastly, all who prioritise the invitation. You'll notice there are two invitations in the parable. Did you spot that? It's quite normal. It's normal today, isn't it? Do you do that? Do you send an email? We'd like to come for dinner. This day, this time, brilliant. And then on the day just before, they, it's still okay? Brilliant. I'm about to put the meat in the oven. I don't want to waste 20 pounds. So you text, don't you, to be sure. It's a kind of double invitation. It happens today. It happened then. But in the parable, the, the people who were invited, they, they accept the, the initial invitation, don't they? And they think, therefore, I've got it, I'm in the kingdom of God, everything's sorted, I'm a Christian. But it can't affect and disrupt my life, and if something better comes up, I'm going to sort that out as well. too. I'll go for that as well. How can this Christian stuff get in the way of my sport, for example, or my social life? Have you seen how busy my diary is? And this is where the excuses come. And they're pretty lame, aren't they? Look at them, if you can. All the excuses, they're pretty ridiculous. Verse 19, the the, the old field excuse there is coming out. Um, I mean, you put it into the translation it's like buying a house, but never looking at the house before you go and buy it. How ridiculous. Of course there are those people about 10 o'clock on BBC One who go to auctions. and Of course you can give me examples and so on, but you wouldn't do that, would you? You wouldn't go and buy a house without ever looking at it. Verse 20, who buys a car without first giving it a text drive? Think about it in oxen terms, but you know, there we go. It's pretty realistic. Who would do it? Verse 21, can can you imagine getting married at such short notice? Now, men who have gone through that process would probably say that's a good thing. But no first century Jew would do that. It's months of preparation. These aren't excuses. What are these? These are insults. You've been invited to the most eternal, amazing banquet, full of joy with, with God at the head of your life and eternity, throughout eternity. And they're basically saying, I can't commit. I can't commit to it. But you see the point? If you can't commit, you can't come. And if you can't come, you can't enjoy the party at all. You'll miss out on so much today, in life now, all the joy, all the purpose of knowing that one day that's gonna be yours. You're gonna miss out on it all. That is, you wanna kind of put it this way, you wanna sneak out of the banquet. Oh, out of this Christian life. You know what? You wanna just dip your toe in something else. What you consider a better invitation. Have you done that? You get invited to two parties or three parties in one night. You go to one for a little bit, and you sneak out to another and come back again. You miss out on all the kind of the bigger element of the party, don't you? And you may be saying this to yourselves: you know, you can't commit a certain part of your life, your relationships, maybe. You can't commit your wallet. You, it, it seems too hard, but all you're doing is missing out the joy of the banquet now and all the foretaste that it is for all that is to come in eternity. And you're stifling God's power in your life today. And the contentment and the joy that it brings as you compromise, dipping your toe in and out in various parts of your life. It is a very dangerous place to be. And that familiarity with God just oh yeah, I'll come when I want to, this part of my life, but not that bit. Familiarity very quickly breeds contempt. Do be very careful. So to conclude, what is your expectation of the Christian life? And whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. What do you think this Christian life looks like? Well look, it's a great banquet. A banquet full of joy. And it's being prepared for you right now. So, first point, wait patiently. You get a taste now. The taste is amazing, isn't it? But it's only a taste. And know that you can bring nothing simply to the cross you claim. But come to God in his kingdom banquet, recognizing that, yeah, you've got to get used to it. All kinds of people will be there from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of histories in them. But they come without any excuse, as you ought to too. You can only come if you prioritize the invitation of the king. Now, all this, all of that which I've mentioned, requires one thing, and it's the context of the whole of chapter 14. Cast your eyes back to verse 11 if you can, just to close. Because I think this one thing really helps us. Verse 11 says this, Jesus finishes the previous parable saying, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That was the point to the Pharisees, and I guess it's the point to us. You see, if you're going to wait patiently for this kingdom, it requires humility. Because you've got to submit yourself to God's time rather than your time. And to bring nothing requires humility because we all want to bring things. We all want to say, I've done this, I have that. And Jesus just says no, simply to the cross I claim. Knowing all kinds of people requires humility because it blows all of your sense of kind of in crowd, out crowd, kind of social hierarchy. It blows it all out and says, no, you're all rebels. All needing the grace of Jesus Christ. Prioritizing the invitation also requires humility. Because you're going to have to submit the whole of your life, not just part of it, the whole of your life, to the great host of this great banquet that will bring eternal joy at this wonderful feast. Let's pray as we close. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Heavenly Father, I guess in all of our hearts there are are stubborn elements which we long to keep hold of, that we don't want to submit ourselves and all of our lives to you. So please now, help us to humble ourselves. That exaltation is, we've seen a, a glimmer of it in this kingdom banquet, this eternal place of joy. And we long for that. We know that you've done everything for us to be there. That our place is made up. That there's a a napkin with a little piece of card with our name on it. And the seat is ready for us to take our place. The food is amazing. The company is exceptional. And the host beyond words. Heavenly Father, help us to prioritise your invitation for us to be at that heavenly banquet. Amen.